Well, grab your Bibles. We are in Genesis 33 and 34. We're going to hopefully finish both chapters here. But, but as we've been going through the story of Genesis, last week we left off with Jacob leaving Haran after 20 some odd years. Uh, he took off with his family. Uh, Laban came after him. He took all the wives and headed back toward the land of his inheritance to get back to Bethel the house of God, because the, the Spirit came to him and said, you need to get back to Bethel. You need to get back to where I met you. That is where it's really important in your life. Now, Laban, his father-in-law, did not like that at all. Um, didn't like him leaving. He pursued him, but God told him, don't touch Jacob. He is mine. You leave him alone. So they came back and forth, and they did this whole dance of threatening each other. If you come back to my country, I can, you know, don't cross this line, or I'm going to get you, you know, all that stuff that was going on. So Jacob escaped that, but now he's having this, idea, this whole idea of in this anxiety that's built up. I'm going back to the land of my forefathers, but there's Esau. Esau I ran from 20 years ago. Esau that, uh, or a little over 20 years ago, um, yeah, somewhere around 20 years, I guess. But uh, Esau's brother wanted to kill him that, uh, before that. So he didn't know how Esau was going to react. So he sends uh, all these gifts to Esau. And, and, you know, today, what kind of gifts? We would do monetary gifts, you know, or, or a little trinket from, you know, we walk through uh, uh, the stores and go, oh, they would really like, no, no, no. Back then it was animals. He gave him a whole bunch of animals, up to about 600 animals. He's trying to soften his heart. And then Genesis uh, 33, it says, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with 400 men. So Jacob, the schemer, who is now called Israel, in other words, governed by God, controlled by God, but he's also refer, kind of reverting back to the ways of Jacob because he's living in the flesh. It, it's kind of interesting. As we go forward, he has called Jacob twice as many times as he's called by his new name, Israel, or almost twice as many. From the time God renames him, 45 times he's referred to as Jacob, and only 23 times he's referred to as Israel. Unlike, unlike Abraham. You know, when Abraham got his name changed from Abram to Abraham, I mean, the name stuck. Okay, everybody, you know, but Jacob, he's still got, you know, he's still battling with that flesh within his life. In the spirit, he's called Israel. In the flesh, he's called Jacob. Now, before we get too hard on Jacob, we all have a little bit of Jacob in us, don't we? Oh, man, we, we all have a little bit of the world in us. And, you know, and, and that's the whole journey is replacing that with Christ-like character in our lives. And, and we love the Lord. We love to walk in the ways, uh, uh, you know, in his ways. But we also walk in the flesh in certain areas of our life that we, that we you know, we need to be continually reminded to clean up uh, our actions and our attitudes. And we have this tendency. And the Lord reminds us that we're acting in the flesh. So Jacob, in that mindset, it goes on and says here, so he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and his two female servants. He put the female servants and the children in front. Wouldn't you love to be that group, you know? You guys go up front. You're going to meet the 400 men first, you know. Uh, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went, on, uh, went ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as his brother or as he approached his brother. Now, you know exactly the pecking order now in the family. 
You know, the ones that are, okay, I love my family, but the ones I don't love as much, they're up front because if, if Esau starts attacking, who's going to get, you know, so you know the pecking order, and uh, it's very obvious. He doesn't know if Esau is going to outright kill them, um, so the least favorite in front. And, and we see the beginning of the family issues because later on, what happens to Joseph? His 11 brothers sell him off, don't they? They beat him. They wanted to kill him. They didn't. The oldest said, wait, wait, wait a second. But they beat him up and they threw him down in a well. And then a caravan for, uh, a caravan for Egypt is coming by and they sell him. So we can see the, you know, because where, where is Joseph right now? Well, he's in the back. He's not up in the front. So you see those things are already, already starting here. He, you know, how Joseph was favored over the other kids. And since Joseph is, the, you know, his favorite, the brothers are jealous. So now to his credit, Jacob actually goes up front. He doesn't hide behind all the women and children. Uh, you know, that's a good thing. He bows down before his brother. This is very customary. Uh, anyone who outranks you, you give them deference. You give them their, their due. And the problem is the fact that Jacob is the one who should outrank his brother here. Not because of the pecking order of birthright, but because God said what? The older should bow before the younger. And we'll, we'll end up seeing that happen in the generation, the next generation. But, we, we, you know, God told him he would. God told him what would happen. But he kind of tried to manipulate it to make it happen a little faster. So Jacob is scared here. And he's ignoring that point, that, that God, what God said. And it reminds me of Proverbs 29, 25. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Interesting. We should have respect for others. We should have respect for authority, but we should never be in fear of the other people. When we start fearing man and start watering down the message, trying to be politically correct, you see what path that goes down. It goes on in verse 4 and it says, But Esau took up, or looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? He asked. Jacob answered, these, uh, these are the children God has graciously given your servant. Now as much as Jacob has screwed up over his life, and we've seen it over and over and we've talked about it, we do see some growth in his faith here. He is acknowledging how the Lord has graciously blessed him. And back then, blessing was children. And, well, I mean, today, blessing should still be children, you know. But, but especially back then, I mean, that was a, a central thing. So he's, he's at least acknowledging the Lord here. It goes on in verse 5. Then the, then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all, Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what is the meaning of all these flocks? and herds I've met. And remember last week, him spacing out all the, the servants that uh, were delivering the animals. You deliver these animals. You deliver those animals. And over time, you know, all these herds kept showing up. Every few miles, uh, you know, Esau was traveling. He would see this gift, and it was over 600 animals. And Esau was like, well, what's this all about? And the reply is to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. But Esau said, I have already had plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Now we think, oh, they're just being gracious, whatever. This is a cultural thing, and we'll talk about that. But, but what's in, really interesting here is Esau comes across more genuine and kind-hearted than Jacob, which is kind of interesting. 
Jacob's actions were, were, were what? Preserving himself, preserving his lineage, preserving his line, preserving, you know, he was thinking all about himself. But Esau seems genuinely happy about seeing his brother. Now, I don't believe Esau is saved. I don't think he's a believer in the Lord. His book is, I mean, his name in this book and, and throughout the Bible is really synonymous with the world. Um, the book of Hebrews in, in the New Testament mentions Esau and how, how he was just such a worldly person. And even worldly people can grow up and be good in society, but it doesn't mean they grow in faith. It doesn't mean that they believe. It's just they're a good person. You can be a good person and still go to hell, unfortunately. I wish that wasn't the case, but that is the case. Jacob is still Jacob, but he's also grown in his walk with the Lord. Verse 10, it says, No, please, said Jacob, if I found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For, to, you, or for to, to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that, that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me, and I, and, all, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Uh, Jacob's basically going, whew, oh man, you didn't kill me and my family. Okay, I'm happy. Just keep the stuff. That's fine, you know. Uh, and I think this... This part of the gift is the fact that he feels sorry for cheating Esau out of the birthright, out of the blessing that, that was bestowed on that. And therefore, this is an apology. Esau accepts the apology. In that culture, you never accepted a gift from your enemy. Okay, you see the cultural part coming in here? Basically, they're both apologizing, and Esau is saying, I accept your gift. I forgive you for what happened way back there all those years ago. Uh, so he acknowledges that they're back on good terms. And this alludes to, to chapter 32 where, where he wrestled with God, and he saw God's face, and, and he lived. And the idea is, that, man, I, I've seen your face again, and I have lived, and, and you know, kind of the, some of the same feelings going on here. And this is interesting also. I want to point out, I don't have this in my notes, but this is a good reminder for us. It's never too late to apologize. When you've wronged somebody way back when, or somebody else has wronged you way back when, it's never too late to apologize, and it's never too late to accept the apology and get back on, on decent terms. Some of us hold grudges, don't we? It's easy to hold grudges because as soon as you see them or as soon as that name comes up, man, wells up in you, doesn't it? You get worked up over it and, you, and you're not even there with them and you can still get worked, on it, uh, worked up on it. It's never too late to issue an apology or accept the apology graciously. Verse 12, it says, And Esau said, Let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. But Jacob said, My Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must take care of the ewes and the cows that are nursing their young. If you're driven hard, or if they are driven hard for just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant. While I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and the herds before me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Sire. Esau said, then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that? Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Sukkah, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. 
This is why the place is called Sukkoth. Now, what's going on here? Well, after the reunion, he's like, well, come back home with me. Come on. And Jacob is, again, going back to being Jacob. He's the master of looking out for himself. Jacob starts heading north, not to the south where Zaire would have been. So he's kind of, he's getting a little space there. Everything's all on straight and narrow now, but he still has that feeling. So, you know, he's a little scared of him, I think, at this point. But he goes back over the river to back to a place where he, he actually builds a house. Now, why isn't he headed toward Bethel like God asked him to do? God asked him to go to Bethel. He goes to Laban and says, it's time for me to go back home. And Laban says, well, well, no, no, stay around a little bit longer. And he stays another six years in Haran. And then the Lord says, hey, you need to get going. I, I want you to go to Bethel. And he finally starts heading home. He meets his brother and he goes to Sokoth and not Bethel. What, what is, I mean, why is he doing this? And this is kind of interesting. This is the first time one of the patriarchs will live in a house. This is a step backwards in his walk for, with the Lord because they were supposed to be nomads in the land until a certain time. Unfortunately, his family kind of pays for this dis disobedience later on. Again, this is a good time to consider how our actions affect our family. In a couple of weeks, we're going to see how, how the actions really affect his whole family. Uh, but has, especially for the head of the household, your actions affect the family. Has, can have a profound effect. So after 8 to 10 years, he enters back into the promised land. So there's an 8 to 10 year gap between he goes back and sees Esau, gives him all the animals, everything's kosher with them. And now, verse 18. After Jacob came from Padam Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, a plot of ground where he pitched his tent. Then he set up an altar and called it El Elohe, Israel. So at least he's coming back to the promised lands. He's back in Canaan, but not to Bethel quite yet. God was calling Jacob, go back to Bethel, but he's still not there. He's back to a place, God was calling him back to a place where he experienced God. And we've talked about how sometimes we need to build that altar in a sense. We need to have those places where we remember God. And I, I keep saying that my place to remember God is Hawaii, and I keep trying to go back there, you know. But, you know, we need to have those places where we look, set back and go, God was here. I remember when God did this for me. I remember when, when, when God was just such an amazing God. So we all should have our Bethels, a relationship that, that became real with God. So Jacob is in partial obedience, which is what? If you have children, you understand this. Partial obedience is what? Total disobedience, right? I keep telling myself, no, 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 stop. Listen to the whole thing. Don't just listen to the first half and take off and go do it because you didn't hear the rest of it. You have to do total obedience, not partial obedience. And Jacob is still being Jacob. And this shows how we can be called by God to get back to him and how we can resist that call to come back to God, to come back to total obedience. See, once we get back into the world, it's hard to get back to God. It's hard to make that clean break from the world where, where the Lord says, when are you going to come back to me? When are you going to get back to me? When are you going to get back to that first love that you had for me? 
See, Jacob wants to get back to God, but it's been 20 years, and he, so he starts that process. But then it's another 10 years that goes by. And this is like the Lord when he separated, uh, or uh, this is like Lot when he separated from Abraham. Do you remember that? He pitched his tent where? Right next door to Sodom. 20 years later, he lives in Sodom, and he's one of the city leaders. Now, did he go pitch his tent near Sodom thinking, man, I want to be the city leader one day? No. Slowly, over time, he moved into the city and moved into disobedience and moved into the world's type of living. And the Lord had to save him from that. That would drag him out of the city, in fact. question is, what does God have to do to drag you back to him? What does God have to do in your life to get you to focus back on him, to get you focused back on the promised land? Because he will do that. Don't test him on that. It's like I tell my son every now and then, you know, don't test me on this one. When I say don't test me on that one, that means you're, you, you've like, you're standing on the line or you've already kind of tiptoed across that line. If you go any further, boom, I'm going to come down on you. Now, I don't, you know, I don't slap around my child or anything like that, but I'm just saying discipline will happen. God will do that sometimes. He, you know, Jacob is dragging his feet for 10 stinking years. Man, he's trying to look spiritual, but it's called partial obedience. He moves into Shechem. He builds an altar there called El Elohi, Israel. In other words, the God of Israel. So he's acting spiritual without being the spiritual leader, and it has profound effect on his family as a whole. See, God cares about the heart. God doesn't care what church you attend, as long as they're teaching the word and the foundation is there. I mean, if they're teaching heretical stuff, then you shouldn't be there. You know what I'm saying? But God doesn't care what church you attend or what denomination. The real question is, are you really walking with the Lord or not? Are you pretending to walk with the Lord? Now, if you've read 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel, you remember when God told Saul to wipe out the Amalekites to kill all the animals and, and everything, and he goes and, and partially obeys God? And there's a reason for all that. We're not going to go into it today. We've talked about it in the past, but you know, he keeps some of the choice animals to sacrifice to God. And in 1 Samuel 15, 22, God told him what? It is better to obey than to sacrifice. It's better to obey. God wants obedience from us. He doesn't want religion from us. Doing things for God is great, but even better if you are obeying him. This altar that he builds, El Elohi, should be in Bethel. It shouldn't be where he's at. And now we're going to see what happens with this family. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leo, had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. So she would have been somewhere at 15 to 17 years of age, we think, country girl. She's going into the big city. The big city kind of thrills her. Visit the other women, make some friends. She's not attuned to the ways of the world yet. Probably had never left the family because they would have always been with someone 
never alone. In, in, you know, in, in Hebrew, went out means snuck out. So it's almost like she's sneaking out at night. You know, I got, we have cameras around our house, and it's kind of funny. And I've been meaning to say something to the parents of one of our neighbors because at about 1 a.m., I see a car, you know, I looked at the reviewed, and uh, not that I was up at 1 a.m., but I saw the, you know, records a little bit, and a car came up, turned its lights off, and I thought, well, are they breaking into a car? Because, you know, that stuff goes on. No, somebody gets out of the car, and they run, like, a house away, you know, from their house, and they run to their house, and they come back out, they get in the car, and they leave, you know, with the lights off, and then about two hours later, the same thing happens, and I'm like going, I wonder what's going on there, you know? So sneaking out in a sense, the, the middle of the night, I don't know if it's nighttime at this point or not, but she's not attuned to the ways of the world and she's sneaking out and she pays for it dearly. She is raped. Now the rape is not her fault. Rape is never acceptable in any circumstance whatsoever. And going out by herself in this situation, that part was her fault. Do you see what I'm saying? So don't get me wrong. I'm not blaming the woman, okay? But what I'm saying is she's putting herself in a negative situation, a difficult situation. And that's called personal responsibility on that, end, uh, on that end. Out late at night, never good. What happens in the night? Most of the crime happens in the night, you know? Common sense. We would say that about anything else. Oh, it's sad. A kid gets shot. We go, oh, man. Yeah, that stuff happens at night. So it's common sense. You put yourself in a negative situation. Same thing with a young girl going out during this time. She put herself in a difficult situation. Verse 2, it says, When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of the area, saw her, he took her and raped her. And this is a description. Of the Hebrew is aggravated rape, an abomination before the Lord and society. In the Canaanite culture, um, any woman walking around without the covering, and we've seen the, uh, you know, the, all the stuff, the covering in different cultures and so forth, and, and if they're without another family member, they were always in danger of being raped. In Jewish culture, if you went out like that, it was looked upon as extremely heinous. And, you know, it was, it was a great dishonor to the family, not just to the woman, but to the whole family. Because the culture is based on honor. Now, when one family member is hurt, violated, you dishonor the whole family. You can see how the vengeance goes back and forth, right? You can see the Palestinian and the, the Arab rage and Israel's rage. It goes back and forth, back and forth. Because it's an honor-bound culture. This is what motivates the family. In fact, it motivates her, her brothers here. Verse 3, it says his heart, in other words, we're talking about the guy who raped her, was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Huh. Yeah. Spoke tenderly after the fact. And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, Get me this girl as my wife. Now, this is, an, this is a lustful, emotional lust. This is not love. There wasn't a two-way street. There wasn't a building of relationship here. This was a lustful act. And then afterward, give me this, give me this girl as my wife. I mean, kind of like, wow, I want this thing. Can you buy it for me? It's the same attitude here. 
Later we find out that he kept her at her house. In other words, you know, against her will and things like kidnapped her. And in 2 Samuel, David's uh, son Amon, uh, he was really, really head over his heels uh, over his half-sister Tamar, a very beautiful woman. And Absalom was her full brother, good-looking guy and all that kind of stuff. And Amon really couldn't, you know, he kept saying, oh, I couldn't, I can't, you know, live without her. So his friend said to her, pretend you're sick and have Tamar take care of you. And this is what happens. So she comes in to help and you know what happens, Okay. So then this honor happens here, and honor was a huge thing, and a strange thing happens. As soon as he does the act, in 2 Samuel 13, 15, he says, his hatred immediately starts. He tells her to get up and get out. Where was the love? You see what I'm saying? It's lust, not love. Strong emotion can feel like love, but it's really lust. Now, unlike Amon, you know, Shechem wanted to keep Dinah. He was a prince, so he got what he wanted. You know what I'm saying? He basically tells dad, let's make this right. You go get permission for me to keep her. This is all about himself. If someone ever says, if you're dating young people, if you're dating somebody, and someone ever says, I can't live without you, that is a huge red flag you need to run, Okay. Here's a young man, it's a prince, prince, and he wants what he wants, and he tries to get it. Verse 5, it says, When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock. So he did nothing about it until he came home. Now, I'm not impressed with Jacob here at all. If this was me, I'd be heading toward the dude. People would have to hold me back. You know what I'm saying. You know, I, that just, no, you're not going to. Jacob is so laid back here, and I don't get it. Verse 6, and Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the field as soon as they had heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done this outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to him, my son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife and to marry with us give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves you can settle among us this land is open to you live in it trade in it and acquire property in it and basically he's trying to bribe him here verse 11 then Shechem said to Dinah's uh, father and brothers let me find favor in your eyes and I will give you whatever you ask make the prince for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like and I'll pay whatever you ask only, th- only give me the young woman as my wife. Now, basically saying money is no project, I mean, money is no object, name your price. Now, these guys have no idea who they're dealing with. I mean, Jacob's a schemer. You know what I'm saying? Here the father of Shechem, always giving his son what he wants, fought his battles for him all his life, and we kind of see that right now going on with the universities and and getting people, you know, the, you know, paying to get kids into college and all that stuff. And you're seeing it come apart and all that kind of stuff. Same principle here, the same type of father who, who battles for their child. The sons never, you know, the kids never suffer consequences, always making excuses for them. You know, it's almost like, I know he did wrong, but, but he's really a good boy. Let's make it right. 
Let's just all, you know, let our kids just marry each other and everything will just be all right. Now, this is not an option. Why is it not an option? We got to look at the big picture. This would have defiled the messianic line. It would have, you know, corrupted God's redemptive plan. And this is where, again, I have to say, we have to look at the big picture. Here's Satan trying to get God off his plan, off the track. You know, you know just as he tried to do with Adam and Eve, just as he did with the angels, you know, marrying humans before the flood of Noah that we've talked about, just as he, you know, did trying to, you know, what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, just before God destroyed it, all the stuff going on, all the stuff that was acceptable. And now here with Jacob and his kids, he's trying to corrupt the family line. Just let our kids marry. It won't change them. They're all good kids, you know, down in their hearts. But as we've talked about, marrying an unbeliever changes you for the worse. It takes you down a path that is away from God and not toward God. This would have never happened if Jacob would have followed the Lord and went to Bethel in the first place. So here we're kind of blaming the daughter a little bit for going out at night when she shouldn't have been out. But really it goes back to Jacob because the family wouldn't have been there if Jacob hadn't have made that decision. You see my point? Verse 13, it goes, Because their sister uh, Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully. I wonder where they learned that from. Replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, We can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into agreement with you on on." one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Now, circumcision was not just unique to the Israelites. Other cultures also practiced this. But here the boys were like, no, 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 we can't do it. You, you've got to go through this thing. Verse 16 says, then we will give you, give you our daughters and take your daughters in marriage. In other words, you know, our clans can kind of come together. And Shechem and them are looking at Jacob and going, man, this guy's blessed. I mean, look at all, you know, look at all what he has. Look at his family. Look at all the animals. They would love that, wouldn't they? So they're wanting to come together. We'll settle among you and become one of your people. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. The proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem, the young man who was most honored of all his family, his father's family, lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So at least he had enough honor to go through with this, okay, in an adult age. But he's still a rapist. He's still that person. And here the Israelites were using something that was very sacred to God as a ruse. This is a sacred sign of the covenant with God. And they used it as a ruse so, they, so that the, the men couldn't fight back, knowing that they wouldn't be able to fight as they were trying to heal, okay? So verse 20 says, So Hamar and his son Shechem went to the, the gate of the city to speak to the men of the city. In other words, they're selling it to the people of Shechem. Not an easy sell, okay, um, of what's going on. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours, but the men will agree, uh, men will agree to live uh, with us as one people 
only on the condition that our males be circumcised, as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property, and all the animals become ours? So let us agree to their terms, and they will settle among us. All the men who went out to the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. I mean, they're thinking a few days of pain to get all that wealth. I mean, they're almost like salivating over it. They're all like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, okay. Three days later, while all the men were still in pain, and what an understatement that is, because I'm just going to say there's no painkillers. I'm going to leave it there. Three days later, while all the men were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where the sister had been defiled. They seized the flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city out in the fields. They carried off all the wealth and all the women and children, taking as plunder everything in their houses. Now, concerning God's people, this is one of the most horrific, barbaric sins recorded in the scriptures. They were believers. They were not perfect people. But this is a sin, plain and simple. They started out to get Hamor and Shechem, but somewhere along the path, their scheme changed. It became an excuse, an excuse to go berserk, an excuse to go crazy. If they just come to the, you know, came, came after the father and the rapist, I could sort of understand justice at this point. Um, but, but all the men taking the wives and children and everything. And Jacob's response is also sad here. It's very self-focused. Uh, in in uh, verse 30 it says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute. It's kind of funny. Jacob is more concerned about himself than all the people that were just killed in Shechem. Simeon and Levi went too far on this, but Jacob, and in fact, Jacob wouldn't forget about it uh, later on. He, he remembers all this. Back in Genesis 49, David is on his, I mean, uh, Jacob is on his deathbed, leaning on his staff and prophesying over his sons. And he says, uh, in 49 verse 5, Simon and Levi's are brothers, their swords are weapons of violence. Let, not, uh, let me not enter their council, let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel, I'll scatter them in Jacob to disperse them in Israel. And this is basically what happens to all their descendants. Simeon is absorbed into the tribe of Judah. And Levi never inherited land. They became the priestly tribe. He inherited a few cities here and there. But, but Simeon and Levi basically forfeited some of their birthright because of their actions here. And, you know, they were second and third on the totem pole when it came to their birthrights and all that kind of stuff. Reuben will also forfeit some of his birthright because he sleeps with one of his dad's concubines. I mean, you can see how the family is so uh, just really messed up here. Because, he, you know, because of all this, the birthright actually gets 
handed down to the fourth son. Can you guess who the fourth son is? The line of Christ, which is the line of anyone? Judah. The line of Judah. So you see how the birthright gets handed down, how God knew, you know, when he, when he said the line would come through Judah, he knew all this was going to happen. This is the, the, you know, the, the tribe from, from which the Messiah will come. So we see the ugliness of the, of the Bible and the, uh, the ugliness of, of the believers, but it wouldn't have happened if they would have responded to God. It wouldn't have happened if Jacob, who is now Israel, would have led his family in a godly way from the beginning. But he was always what? Out for himself. And that is what we have to watch for. Our sight, our vision should be on God. If we're, our vision is on God, we can avoid some of the ugliness. So the question is, what has God told you? Has he spoken to you through his spirit? If not, you need to ask him, Lord, speak to me. Where should I be in this life? And it doesn't mean, oh, where should I be? Should I move to this area? No, where should my walk be with you? Sometimes that involves where we live. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes that involves what job we have. Sometimes it doesn't. But really, it boils down to the heart. And we need to do what he says. And we should do it in the way that he directs us to do it. Because obedience honors God. And through that obedience, what happens? We're blessed. Especially when we're in the place that God wants us to be. He'll watch over us. He'll protect us. He will provide for us. And the devil will not be able to get to us. If we, you know, if we, if we wander outside the, you know, his umbrella of protection, what happens? We get wet, right? My wife and I, because, you know, our eight-year-old, Brandon, he's able to go outside and do a few things on our block. We live on a cul-de-sac, pretty safe. But our younger one, we're a little more protected, aren't we? Three and a half. He doesn't understand the, the, neighbor on the golf cart doing donuts in the end of the cul-de-sac. You know, my older son knows that when that start, stuff starts happening, you come inside. You don't stay out there. Grayson, he'd walk right out there in the middle, and then he'd get hit. You see what I'm saying? So that umbrella of protection, we protect him. It's the same thing with God and us. When we are under the protection of the, of the Lord, the Lord protects us. He says, no, 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 no. Alan, don't, don't go there. Come, come back over here. Here, that's going on over here. Let, let's go back and play in the backyard. Let's go, go inside. Let's go do this or let's go do that. But if we run out from underneath that protection, what happens? Golf cart, slam, splat. That's what happens in life. So the question is, where does God want you? Are you under the protection of the Lord or have you wandered off? If you've wandered off, Come back to the Lord. Come back to the Lord. If you're under his protection, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen? Well, why don't you stand and we'll finish with some prayers. Joshua and the worship team comes up here and, and finishes that one last song. So, let's pray. Lord, I pray that we understand your protection is there for all of us. I pray that in this life that there are times when we wander off, when we decide that we can do certain things on our own. 
And for reasons unknown to me, Lord, you allow us to wander off. But I pray, Lord, that we always come back to you, that we always come back to your protection, that we listen to the, the workings of your spirit in our life, that we start to understand the direction that you want us to go, the godly directions, that the decisions that we make can have an effect on our families, can have an effect on our friends, can have a profound effect on the direction of our life. But even if we make wrong decisions, Lord, you're still there and you're still calling us back to the right one. And may we listen to you, Lord. May we listen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he bless you when you're under his protection. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.